Welcome to the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny Koo, and today we have a recording of one of our monthly meetings at the Humanist Association of London and Area. Our speaker this month is Dr. Charles Jones, and he's a professor of political science at Western University. He specializes in contemporary political theory and the history of political thought, with an emphasis on global justice, human rights, freedom, and equality. His talk today is on patriotism. Loyalty to country or nations seem to be a powerful value, but putting your country first seems to violate equal concern for all human beings. How should we think about patriotism? So that is the question for this talk, and we hope you'll enjoy it. You can check out our show notes on our website at www.humanistagenda.com. Now here is Dr. Charles Jones. Thanks very much, Rod. Um, I don't know if I can live up to the introduction, but um, I do have one copy that I handed out, uh, just a list of quotations. You don't need to, the list of quotations to follow the talk, but I have an extra one. That's for my special friend. And um, so I don't have any more, unfortunately, but uh, you don't, like I said, you don't need them. Uh, but I always have... Fun here. I always learn from the discussion. I'm going to try and finish by I've been told by around eight o'clock, and uh, and then we take a break, and then there's questions after that. So, uh, but the main reason I'm here is to flog this book, right? <laughs> so I get on Amazon, and uh, I think it's like twenty eight bucks or something, and I get fifty cents or something. For, for, I mean, this is the way the publishing business works. It's quite impressive. Anyway, sorry. You might be able to buy it on Kindle. You ought to be. Yeah. So it's Polity Press, which is a very good press in, in Britain. And it's a series uh, called Key Concepts in Political Theory. So it's a, the talk is about patriotism, but I'm a political philosopher, political theorist. So I'm going to be uh, talking about it from that perspective rather than dealing, talking about the, the history of it or, or particular facts. So anyway, that's, the again, the main reason I'm here. <laughs> and... Let's see if this thing... Oh, that was... When I talked about populism, that was my slide, and I'm just... Out of laziness, I kept it up. because It's relevant. Uh, this is uh, President uh, uh, Temper Tantrum getting his crap all over the American flag, which he continues to do. So a year later, it's still relevant. Uh, right to this very day. The globe's about to topple over, too. The relationship between... And, uh, you know, it's, Trump is relevant for the idea of patriotism if it means love of country. Uh, here we're talking about, uh, you know... In his case, the motto of America first, uh, what does that mean, right? It, it, the vaguer, the better as a, a piece of political rhetoric. But when you try and get it down to something specific, um, well, that, that's the kind of thing I want to think about uh, and talk about today. So the question. So for some, there, people will have different stages of sort of understanding or background in the topic. So uh, the idea, one, one thing is if you're, have no interest whatsoever, you'll have the piece of paper to take home, so that's good, and you can turn, out right, turn off right now. Uh, or you might just think about a question. I mean, Rod set it up very nicely, connecting it to humanism. So, uh, but my question is a simple one. Is patriotism immoral? For some people, this is obvious. Yes, Leo Tolstoy famously thought patriotism was evil uh, and the cause of war, and as a Christian and a pacifist, um, don't hold this Christianity against him. <laughs> he thought that, I think he would have said, a humanist and a pacifist, you ought to be uh, against, you're, if you're against war, you ought not to be a patriot. That's what Tolstoy thought. Um, so for him, it was kind of obvious. Um, I don't think it's obvious that patriotism is immoral, uh, but it, that's, it's one of the questions that I want to focus on today. Is it synonymous with tribalism? Let's get the question period started already. This is good. I like this, but I'm going to run out of time. Um, that's a good question. So I'm going to talk about that. And there's a, there's a quote on there about, the, about tribal morality being tribal, necessarily tribal. That's a good question because tribalism is something that we tend to think of as problematic, right? But still, that, it's on, it also has several meanings. Um, well, if it's immoral, then patriots can't be good people. But this is a related question. Can you be a patriot and a good person? I think Rod pointed this out already. Sure, it seems like it's possible. Um, but in part, it depends on how we understand patriotism. And then, you know, the, from the opposite angle, the question might be, well, if you want to be a good person, do you have to be a patriot of a certain sort? It's not just that is it, it's optional, like what you suggested. Humanism doesn't say one way or the other. But 
it could be the case that in order to be a good person, you have to be a patriot of a certain kind. And uh, there are parts of this interesting book that I've been told uh, contain things that I won't talk about because I'm not talking about the whole book tonight. But there are chapters in the book that talk about uh, an attempt to defend a certain kind of patriotism uh, that's compatible with humanism. So don't, you know, (laughs) don't worry. (laughs) So uh, it could be the case that in order to be a good person, you have to be a patriot. And then, of course, the question related to what Rod was talking about I thought of this too, the connection between patriotism and humanism. So a a question for humanists, for you people, can humanists be patriots? Or does their humanism, if it implies a commitment to our fellow human beings, all human beings should count as equals and so on, um, regardless of their country. Patriotism is love of country, as I'll talk about in a second. Um, So either, you know, humanism... um, requires the rejection of patriotism, or uh, it requires the embrace of a certain kind of patriotism, or maybe it doesn't say anything about it one way or the other. Um, it could be that that question is misleading, but maybe the answer to both questions, can humanists be patriots, and does humanism imply a commitment to all human beings and not just to our fellow Canadians, let's say. Maybe the answer to both questions is yes, that you can be a humanist and a patriot You can recognize that all human beings count equally, that we ought to show uh, special concern for some people. That's compatible with recognizing every human being as as the moral equal of every other. There are different ways to to explain what that that means. But anyway, that's that's, uh, the sort of question. I realize that there, I talked about the question and then I gave you three questions. I hope you were paying attention, but anyway. (laughs) Um, Good, so. That's the kind of puzzle. It's basically the the moral status of patriotism. So what is patriotism? uh, It's very difficult for me to address any any question without getting right down to the very basic thing, so I hope you don't mind, but I always find that uh, people often believe they know what they're talking about and they don't make it clear, and then disagreements arise because people aren't clear in their thinking and providing certain definitions or whatever. So what is patriotism? Well, the word patria fatherland, right? That's the the origin of the term. Uh, But at the very least, or I'll stipulate for tonight, the patriotism means love of country, loyalty to country, and special concern for the well-being of your compatriots, your fellow fellow members of your country. So there's there's a certain kind of emotional attachment, love, of loyalty that commits you to behave in a certain way, to this particular group of people. Or, your, or country is ambiguous. So what is our country? We love our country, right? Pro patria mori. To, you know, there's nothing greater that a human being can do than to die for their country. This is in the last many centuries where many people died, uh, most humanists would say needlessly, right? In in you know marching in 1914 to fight other people and kill you know wasted lives in the name of country, right? But a patriot says there's nothing greater you can do than to die for your country. Uh, but what is your country? Well, it could mean at least three things, uh, and so it matters which one we focus on. One is let's say the state. So let's say in the case of Canada, the Canadian state. The, the, the set of institutions, the constitutional framework, and so on. Secondly, the current government. So I think most people realize that that's got to be, that can't be quite right. <laughs> to be a patriot is not to agree with whatever uh, the, the federal liberals do or in the U.S. with what the Trump administration does. And the Trump administration is not the government anyway. I mean, there's, there, as we're finding, you know, there's separation of powers. There's a, there's a legislature that it just made Trump back down and I think what happened today and, and signed an executive order, yes. right? So, I mean, there, there, it isn't a single thing anyway. And then thirdly, probably our country, maybe the, be- the best answer uh, for our purposes is it's a collection of people, my compatriots, my fellow, fellow citizens of my country, who have a shared sense of nationality, you might say in this case of shared Canadian nationality for many of us here, except during the World Cup when you've got, you know, you're Portuguese too, so you gotta have a flag on your car. Maybe the World Cup is very interesting, right? There was a case where a uh, sort of quasi-racist uh, former government minister in Britain, Norman Tebbit. Has anyone heard of Norman Tebbit? It was sort of in the context of sort of anti, 
South Asian racism in the United States when England played cricket against Pakistan and Pakistani Brits were, you know, very concerned that, that Pakistan should win. <laughs> uh, he suggested that you're not really British unless you cheer for England when it's playing cricket against Pakistan. That was the test of citizenship, <laughs> he thought, right? Well, this is kind of dodgy, right? But it is interesting. Uh, these emotions are brought out. And, you know, when Canada plays in the, in the Olympics, maybe that'll never happen again in hockey, we get excited. This, so it's these people, shared sense of nationality, but also the homeland, that's a bad word these days with the homeland security and so on post 9-11. But this, this country, this territory, is often a, a connection to a, a place. So uh, patriotism can mean any or all of those things. And just notice that those are different objects of love or loyalty. The, the state, well, if you love the state, you're like a fascist or something. <laughs> it, but, you know, um, to, to love uh, the institutions, maybe, you know, the, the constitution, uh, the rights that, that it protects and so on, that could be something about what it means to be Canadian. Commitment to one of these three things about country, compatriots, state, constitution, govern the current government. The fact that you're committed to one of them doesn't mean you're going to be committed to either of the others. They're separate things. So we need to be clear about what we're talking about when we say that a patriot is someone who loves their country and is loyal to their country. Could turn out that, you know, a good German in the 1930s certainly doesn't necessarily follow Hitler's uh, edicts, right? In fact, patriotism might require you know, planning to assassinate him and that sort of stuff, right? So the, the, clearly, that's the sort of thing that makes sense and suggests that something like the third answer is really what we ought to be focusing on when we talk about the object of love or loyalty that patriotism focuses on. Okay, so this is a little kind of uh, quasi-technical, just kind of uh, conceptual machinery here. It's pretty straightforward, I think, but I think it helps to focus uh, the issue about what kind of duties a patriot wants to defend. So the patriot says not just that it's okay to love your country but, or to be loyal to it, but that you must. You have a moral duty, a moral responsibility to be loyal to your country. So patriotic duties are, according to some people, associative duties. That just means they're duties uh, or special responsibilities to fellow members of a certain kind of association to which people belong. So associative duties include things like duties to fellow citizens, to your country, women and men. But uh, associative duties include also duties to your brothers and sisters, to your children, to your parents. Uh, so family members, duties to friends, to be, you know, to love and to be loyal to your friends and so on, your, your fellow humanists, <laughs> your fellow Christians, Muslims, so on, right? So it could be all of these different things are types of associations to which we belong. Sometimes we're born into them, sometimes we choose membership in them, and so on. But patriotic duties are this kind of thing, this association we belong to, and a patriot says, just by virtue of belonging, we have these duties to our fellow members. And there are at least two other types of duties. I'm sure there are more, but to, just for our purposes. Um, in addition to associative duties, which are duties we have as membership in particular associations, there are so-called natural duties. So don't worry about the word natural. Just the idea that there are certain duties or responsibilities we have to other people without regard to any association that we belong, that, that, we, that we have shared membership in. So just like to any other human being, not to harm them. Not to, treat, not, not to violate the rights of an innocent person. So regardless of community membership, we have natural duties. But patriotic duties are not like that. They're not something you just have in virtue of being human. You have them in virtue of being a member of a particular country. And thirdly, there are transactional duties, which arise from voluntary commitments that we make. So you make a promise, you have a duty to keep the promise, other things being equal, right? Market relationships, you know, if you... Uh, sign a contract to buy something, buy a house or something, you've got, you've got, that generates a whole list of certainly legal obligations and we might say moral obligations. So these different types of duties, patriotic duties are a species of associative duties. But the question then is, do we, you know, we could, I can just define that into existence or I can say, ask the question, do we have associative duties to our compatriots? That's the question. And if, if we do have them, why do we have them? How might they be limited if we do have them? And 
what is the content of these duties? What is it that we're required to do for our fellow citizens, for our compatriots? Um, well, when it comes to, trend, to, um, to natural duties, I, it, it is a kind of stipulation, but it still sort of makes sense. I mean, it, it, to be a patriot is to show special concern for my fellow members of a particular community within, let's say, the whole community of human beings. So it, it, by, by virtue of that definition, it couldn't be a natural duty, because a natural duty is one that we have regardless of membership in any particular community we're in. It could be the case that someone says, the reason I have a patriotic duty is because I did something, right? I swore allegiance. You know, I was born in one country, and I was brought up in another, and I swore allegiance to this new country, and so I have patriotic duties to them as a result of what I did. So in that case, it would be a transactional duty as well. Yes, exactly. And that would give you, that could be reason enough to be patriotic. Yeah. So that's a good... Okay, so community, I'm going to talk about community and loyalty and nationalism and cosmopolitanism, just sort of throw things at you in a big hurry, and then uh, you can see if there's anything, anything that sticks. Uh, Alistair McIntyre, a very prominent uh, 20th and early 21st century uh, philosopher, Scottish, uh, American, is believed that patriotism is a virtue, wrote, wrote a very famous uh, lecture called, Is Patriotism a Virtue? His answer is yes. And why? Well, I think there, so the question now is why are patriotic duties moral duties? Why should we accept them and be patriots? If, we want, if we're looking for reasons, right? If we're thinking people, we want reasons. McIntyre says roughly, this is paraphrasing, uh, who I am, my sense of my own identity, and this applies to you as well, is linked to the community in which I was raised, the community uh, to which I belong. That's his claim. So patriots love this community. They love this intergenerational community that makes us who we are. If, it's, if, this is a, if my country is a community in which I come to awareness, moral awareness, and understanding of who I am, how I fit into the world, then that seems a very good reason for taking it seriously as an object of love and loyalty. More famous political philosopher, maybe the most famous political philosopher in the English-speaking world, Michael Sandel uh, at Harvard, Famous because if you go on the internet, you can, you know, he, he lectures to huge crowds at Harvard and the whole, his whole course on justice is, is on the internet. It's quite good, actually. But he's quite wrong about patriotism. Anyway, <laughs> here's what he famously says about the, the fact that the community to which we belong generates our, our obligations. He says that we discover, he uses the language of discovery, we discover our attachments. And this is quote number one on the sheet, too. We discover our attachments as members of this family, or community, or nation, or people, as sons or daughters of that revolution, as citizens of this republic. So the claim is that you want to know what duties you have in the world? Just ask yourself, to what country do I belong? Right? What's the history that I've been, you know, I had drilled in uh, my Welsh immigrant parents, uh, told me how important, you know, why I should hate English people and so on. <laughs> they didn't quite do that, but, you know, it's a pride of being Welsh and learning how to sing harmonies and all this sort of stuff. And also about the history between England, the English and the Welsh. That sort of just, that's who you are. I have no choice about the matter. And, and uh, I sort of have to take on these commitments because I've discovered who I am. Um, that's his claim. Uh, I think reasonable response to that is to say this kind of language of, discovery is a little bit um, misleading. Rather than, I mean, do we really think that we have moral duties because we discover the roles into which we were born, rather than making decisions, deciding for ourselves whether there are good reasons to take on those duties? Should I really accept the fact that, you know, what I'm being told about what, it, what is required to be a good American or a good Canadian or a good Welshman? So patriotic love does not sort of automatically take priority over all other Commitments. I mean, after all, what McIntyre says here, and both of them, it's not really true that the only community to which I belong that generates my attachments is my national community or the country in which I was born. It's my family, my friends, uh, other allegiances, the humanists that I still haven't joined, but I have uh, should, and I, where's my, I don't have a toonie. Um, <laughs> right? The, it's not as if there's a single, you know, that the, the national community should take priority over all these others. So it's, such an, it's a very odd thing to, to think that the commitment to community membership generates patriotic loyalty that immediately follows from that that patriotism is a good thing. So I want to say a little bit about patriotism for and against, even though that's what I'm talking, that's what the whole talk is about. Um, on the positive side, patriotism 
can help us overcome self-interest. So you might imagine someone who's, I can't think of anyone right now, but imagine some megalomaniac uh, <laughs> person for whom the only person on earth that matters is himself, right? If he really understood what patriotism means, maybe he wouldn't be so worried about that and he would be more concerned about uh, doing what's best for his country rather than what's best for himself or his image or you know, how, he, how, he, how he thinks he'll be viewed. But even for any citizen, any person, to recognize obligations to a larger community gives you a reason not to be so concerned about yourself. So that could be something positive. Uh, and secondly, it also gives us access to the so-called highfalutin language or sources of meaning and value. So you know, our country, you know, membership in a country gives you choices. In Canada, you have a choice to join different associations, like this one. Uh, this can be a good thing. It's, uh, in some countries, such things are not allowed, right? So on the positive side, connection to, to your fellow citizens and to this larger community that is your country can be, you know, if it can over, overcome self-interest and enable you to, to find sources of meaning and value, then that's positive. On the negative side, there are at least two things, or two that I'll point out to begin with. The first is that communities can be suffocating and damaging so to our social and moral development. So some of you might have come to humanism from uh, a very uh, restrictive religious background, for instance, or there are people who are still within them, or you can, re you can read books about people who sort of escaped, you know, ultra-Orthodox Judaism, right? There's some great books on this sort of thing about people being freed and having to leave that whole world behind. Um, community membership can be suffocating. Well, national membership can be too. It's like being told that, you know, as, as many of you or some of you are like me are old enough to remember during the Cold War in the 1980s uh, saying something critical of your government and being told, why don't you go move to Russia? <laughs> That's what people used to say. People used to talk that way, right? Um, you know, love it or leave it, that kind of thing. Secondly, and this is, I think, topical as well, that patriotic commitment is a form of in-group solidarity. We're on the inside. We've got, so we've got this, it makes us feel good. It gives us a purpose to be members of the in-group. But as the sort of studies in psychology, of course, show that, that uh, in-group solidarity often combines with hatred of the out-group, the people who are different, who are not the same. They're not us. And that can be racist. It can be religionist. It can be sexist. But in the case of patriotism, it's countryist. I just made that word up. And now it's on tape because I'm being recorded. Hatred of outsiders, xenophobia, right? These people should be kept out because they're not like us or just because they're not us. The President of the United States said within the last day or two, the, the idea is we need to secure our borders because our people, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, you know, we are not them. They're trying to get in. We have rules that say they can't get in. Don't say that I'm being harsh and cruel by separating children from parents. Uh, the underlying thing is it's perfectly okay for us to show priority for our country and for people who are on the inside. It doesn't have to go along with the xenophobia. It have, just happens to, uh, to do so in this case, and that sort of helps to justify it. That's a danger, and I take that you don't have to be a humanist to think that it's a bad thing and uh, quite worrying uh, from a moral perspective to prioritize insiders, members of your country, and to assume the people on the outside are more or less worthless. So yeah, I was going to say, I can't think of a contemporary example of this, but I just have given you one. <laughs> um, okay. So this idea that moral, moral values are community values, this is the second quotation on your sheet. The claim that the correct morality is our community's morality. So Andrew Oldenquist, a famous American philosopher, made this sort of stark claim that all morality is tribal morality. There's really no such thing as sort of, I mean, I think he would probably say there's really no such thing as humanism, as a humanist morality. It's, that just means you're, it's, the, it's the morality of the humanist tribe. You're a particular tribe just like all the others. That's what he believes. And so we have to you know, just recognize that um, any claim to, uh, to defend a particular morality as the right one is just pointing to some community or other. That's his belief. And he actually thinks that he's a defender of patriotism. But let's say, you, even if you accept that claim, 
uh, it still doesn't follow that patriotism is justified. Because as I've said before, which, which community should we take seriously? You could say the, uh, the, our country, Canada, is a kind of moral community. Um, but of course, our country is not the only source of moral claims on us. There are a range of communities to which we belong. And you can't just say, well, uh, country trumps, I shouldn't use that word, country overrides. <laughs> can't use that word anymore. It's a perfectly good word. Uh, country, uh, the country overrides religion or, or any other group to which we might, might belong. Right, so yeah, what about your parents, uh, other loved ones, uh, your ethnic group, your religious group, your humanist group? Just because, e even if you agree that any morality is a, is a community morality of some sort, that doesn't legitimize patriotism because it's going to come into conflict. Then what do we do? So really, that's my point. Aren't moral conflicts inevitable? And this gets us to the third quotation. E.M. Forrester, the English writer in 1939, said, you might know this one, if I had to choose between betraying my country and betraying my friend, I hope I should have the guts to betray my country, end quote. So you might say, yeah, that's right. That's the sort of anti-patriotic thing. Um, but that's interesting, isn't it? Um, he's writing in 1939, so he's worried about patriotic commitment and the connection to war. A large war was just getting going. And you might think in that context it would make sense to say, yes, I should favor my friend over my country. But doesn't it depend on who your friend is, <laughs> what your friend's proposing to do, which country, what side are you on at the time in 1939? Uh, you could make a case, a strong case, for British patriotism, Forster is British, for not betraying his country as part of the anti-fascist struggle, right? And I mean, it's, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's obvious that Forster's wrong. Right? What if your friend is, you know, some people say, well, a true friend will help you hide a body, right? That's a line I've heard, right? Um, yeah, really? So that's, that's it. Decide, will you be my friend? Okay, right? Uh, no, not necessarily. Yeah, betraying, and as I said before, betraying your country is not necessarily, is not the same as betraying your government. Depends, right? But in most cases, not. So there are cases, uh, famous cases of German patriots in the name of German patriotism, planning to, you know, organizing to assassinate Hitler. Because they, and, and now look at what it means to be German today. They're very concerned about history and understanding what there, happened in their country and what their forebears did in the middle of the 20th century. And now Germany is, you wouldn't have predicted it in 1945, leading the world in terms of sort of openness to difference. And they've let in a million refugees in the last few years. I mean, a lot better than Canada on that record, right? So yeah, what it, and, and so that could be, yeah, there's something that Germans should be proud of, but also you know, ashamed of this other thing. Being a patriot means both. It doesn't mean, so you should, anyway, I was, I'm gonna come to things that will relate to that, but that's a good point. Yeah, so that's what I said. Patriotic commitment could lead to world war in, uh, in 1939 for Forrester. That's, so he seems to be right about that. You know, I don't, hope I'd have the guts to betray my country, but again, British patriotism could help to fight fascism in that case. Pretty important to be patriotic uh, in 1939 if you're British. And in any case, again, it's the same problem of the inevitability of moral conflict. That appealing to love of country on the one hand or love of friends on the other doesn't answer anything. Um, it doesn't settle the conflicts. And we're, uh, there's no way we're ever going to be able to get rid of moral conflict between, uh, in this case, different groups to which we belong. And there's no sort of hiding from thinking about the decision, uh, the particular cases, just by saying that, well, country always overrides friend or friend always overrides country. Neither of those are true. Loyalty. This is another one. Patriotism is love or, and loyalty to country. Loyalty in general. Most famous case of, of uh, a loyal person is a woman named Rosemary Woods. Anyone heard of her? Nixon's personal secretary. So from when he became a congressman in 1950 until his, the bitter end of leaving the White House, uh, she stuck with him. She famously uh, accidentally uh, deleted some of the audio tape and said that uh, her hand slipped or something. Rather. <laughs> so, I mean, she really, she was so loyal to, to Nixon that she, uh, I'm not, you know, it's possible that uh, she violated uh, some laws and uh, certainly other moral obligations uh, in order to, to be loyal to him. And she said, Great line from Rosemary Woods. People should be loyal, 
or else they shouldn't take those jobs. That is the job of a secretary to a, to a politician. Uh, would you want someone working for you and learning all about you who wasn't loyal? <laughs> right? So people are going to know all about you. I have nothing to hide myself. I don't know. I've never pressed clear history on my, uh, my computer. Um, I have nothing to hide, right? So her idea is to be loyal is to be willing to make serious sacrifices, uh, to learn the good and the bad about a person, and, and to stick with them nonetheless. So it's a, form, it's a form of special concern. It's being partial to that person or to the group, the country, and to be willing to make sacrifices. So then the question is, is loyalty always a virtue? Uh, loyalty, loyalty to a friend is often a virtue. Maybe not always, but more often than not, probably. Loyalty to, loyalty to my fellow white race, probably not, right? So community membership or group membership doesn't really tell us very much about whether something's morally legitimate or not. Friendship, on the whole, good thing, but there are complications. Racism, on the whole, bad thing. <laughs> very few complications, right? Uh, I mean, you can make cases for groups that are discriminated against, sort of black you know, loyalty to recognition, the, pointing out that black lives matter is extremely important, right? That doesn't mean that, that people who defend that claim believe that black people are superior to white people. Of course not. But is patriotism more like friendship or more like racism? That's one way to put, put the, the puzzle. Well, I had to mention this one because uh, in the context of commitment and sacrifice that maybe uh, perhaps a reasonable patriotism requires personal sacrifice to defend your country's legitimate interests. So not just anything it's proposing to do, but it's legitimate interests or to ensure that it's living up to its ideals. And the, the example most famously is from John F. Kennedy's inaugural address in 1961. You can see it on YouTube. <laughs> uh, should I do the accent? I'm not, I can't do the accent. <laughs> you know, so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And then everyone applauds. And interestingly, right after that, so this is, that was number, uh, this is the number five on your sheet. Right after that, he says, my fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but, as one jokester said, ask not what America will do for you, ask what you will do for America. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> He said, ask not what America will do for you, but ask what together we can do for the freedom of man, or as we might now say, for human freedom. That's a pretty good line. That's not as famous. It ought to be as famous. Humanists should uh, be able to quote this one, right? Um, I don't know if you know Ted, Sor Ted Sorensen, Theodore Sorensen, who was Kennedy's speechwriter, came to Western before he passed away about 10 years ago and gave a great talk. He's alleged to have written all these lines and a uh, very articulate, eloquent person and a good guy. And he said, uh, he was asked one time, Mr. Sorensen, did you, did you write that, that speech, that famous line? He said, ask not. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here the idea is, we, to be a patriot, is, to love your country, is to be willing to do something for it, to make sacrifices, but not so that we can step on other countries because they're all worthless and shitholes or whatever the word was. Yeah, that was the word that the current president used. It's that we can all work together to promote human freedom. So that seems like a defensible kind of patriotism, but it's not, you know, it's not what you're, it's not gimme, gimme, gimme. It's not about getting benefits. It's about making sacrifices. It's not, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that's certainly rhetorically powerful. People like to think they believe that. So that's a, a famous thing. I'm getting near the end, but I might go a few minutes over because I've had a few. Here's another one that comes out of patriots, my country right or wrong. And so in writing a book on this, I had to look up who, the, who first said this and what did they mean. So here's the first statement, first famous statement of it was uh, Stephen Decatur, an American naval officer in 1816 said, making a toast, our country, this is quote number six, our country, in her intercourse with foreign nations, may she always be in the right, but our country right or wrong. Some people would describe what the United States today is doing to other nations as intercourse or some word like that. <laughs> so that's unclear what Decatur meant, but let's say he meant what some people think this means, which is we should support our country whether it's right or wrong. Just support your country, right? This kind of mindless patriotism. So I take it that it's kind of obvious that that kind of unquestioning acceptance of your country, that your country right or wrong 
First, what's wrong with it? Well, if it's not obvious, firstly, it prevents the evaluation of our country's actions. We need to say, is it the right thing that we engage in this war or that we keep those refugees or immigrants out or whatever it might be? And secondly, this point that you were making about distinguishing the government's plans from the country's interests could be really in, not in our country's interest to take this particular strategy or to introduce this policy. So unquestioning acceptance is, is obviously out, if that's what Decatur meant, and I'm not saying, it could just be saying, it's, your, it's our country, we have to you know, focus on it. Maybe that's all he was saying. But just to be clear, Carl Schurz, the uh, quote number seven on the sheet, uh, German-American senator in 1872, said an even better quote that ought to be more famous, my country right or wrong, if right, to be kept right, if wrong, to be set right. So that suggests that morality has independent status. It doesn't just flow from membership. We can criticize our country. And in fact, you know, that doesn't tell you what makes something right or not, but it's saying that just being the country's pr proposal is not, uh, is not what makes it right. And that's related to, to James Baldwin, quote number eight, uh, who's now on a stamp I discovered today when I was looking for <laughs> this afternoon. So the great Amer African-American uh, writer of the mid-20th century. And Baldwin said, quote number eight, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. That is, to love your country means to criticize it, not just to do, to accept whatever it imposes on you. That's what patriotism means. It's very different, right? So the defensibility of patriotism depends on your conception of it and how critical it is. So we're getting there. So I want to talk about partiality, nationalism, and cosmopolitanism in five minutes or less. Partiality just means being partial, being, you might say, if you're against it, biased towards this particular group. Oldenquist and McIntyre claim that you can't be a true patriot while recognizing impartial moral standards. That, the, that if you're a patriot, you're going to be partial to some, some group. It's just not right or realistic to, to do anything else, to, to try to be impartial amongst all human beings. McIntyre says, I'm loyal to my country because of a, quote, particular historical relationship of association between my country, its inhabitants, and me. And in order to justify patriotism and patriotic commitment, I don't have to impose some impartial test that's, you know, the golden rule or something like that. That's not necessary. There are many replies you could give to that. My brief one here is just that he's probably right about the emotional force of patriotism, right? There's some times where you might, even if you're very skeptical of it, you might think, well, certain renderings of the national anthem in a particular context after a national tragedy or something can bring a tear to your eye, even against your own will, right? This happens. So there's an emotional force of patriotism, definitely. But uh, that's different from the, what I'm calling the universal standards way by which it should be evaluated. There's no reason why a, patriot, why a country should be immune from moral evaluation, just like an individual or, a, or any other group would be. On the other side, from partiality is impartiality. And when I said, can patriots be good people, can they, it, it, it looks like, is patriotism immoral? The idea was that morality is sometimes thought to, do, to have to do with impartiality. And an impartial perspective is sort of like a God's eye view, I was going to say, but I won't say it here. Um, uh, kind of a view from nowhere, as it's sometimes called, right? Um, but at least it recognizes every person as the equal of every other. So it's kind of an abstract perspective. And there's a version of it which, sort of at the first order level, some might say, to be impartial is to be a moral person. And that means that in your everyday decision-making, you should be impartial. And the famous version of this, and some say this kind of reductio ad absurdum of it, is William Godwin, the uh, godfather of Frankenstein, through being the father of Mary Shelley, said most famously, he thought that you really, you know, he gave it a, an example of a burning building and an archbishop and a chambermaid being trapped in the building. You can only save one of these people from the fire. Who should you save? Uh, the archbishop suppose, is, uh, writes these great books and he does a lot of good things for humanity. The chambermaid is your mother. She doesn't do any special. She's a good chambermaid, but you know, she doesn't contribute to humanity as much as the archbishop. Godwin says, I would save the archbishop. Now, not only could we all sort of naturally think that he's wrong, right? But we think that that, that, that reason, there's something wrong with the reasoning, right? But anyway, his claim is that, quotation number nine, he says, look, you ought to, rec you ought to think in impartial terms. You've got to get over the, your partiality towards your mother. Let her burn because you should save the archbishop. Why? 
Because he says rhetorically, what magic is there in the pronoun my to overturn the decisions of everlasting truth? He's a utilitarian. He says that we ought to maximize happiness, counting everybody equally. And if that means you have to, I mean, in order to really live up to that, you've got to violate personal partial commitments. So that's not one we're often willing to accept. I think it's wrong on other grounds. But anyway, that's first order impartialism. To be impartial means you ought to be thinking what's the best way to maximize happiness or what's the best way to treat every person equally in your everyday decision making. That seems kind of crazy. But a second order impartialism just says we should take an unbiased impartial perspective when judging particularistic relationships like your relationship to your spouse or your child or your friend or your fellow group members of various sorts or your fellow or your compatriots, your co-citizens. It could turn out that, well, you know, we, we love our country because we were brought up. I guess, you know, I brought up with hockey and it's just sort of what I'm like. I f- feel very Canadian. Um, but then the question is, is it justified? Well, it's justified if from an impartial perspective, it's okay for you to do this. And maybe it's okay for everyone in other countries to be especially concerned with their own country. If everyone can do it, maybe, maybe it's okay. So everyone can see the wisdom in allowing people to show special concern for their children, let's say. It doesn't have to be justified by how that produces a better outcome. So there's an impartial perspective that shows how what we are inclined to do is okay in some cases. Okay, we're getting there. So nationalism is another one that comes up because it's often linked to nationalism. Being a patriot, people think it has something to do with being a, a nationalist. Nationalism is often thought to be a bad thing. Others think it's obviously a good thing. So just look at nationalism quickly, directly, and I, again, I'm stipulating, it's nationalism for my purposes is the idea that nations are groups whose members belong together and who owe each other special obligations. So to be a nationalist in this sense is kind of ethical claim about group membership and, and the duties that follow from it. What is a nation? That's the group that's relevant here. Not quite the same as a country. Nations are historically continuous communities of belief, so they're communities of belief. We're not a nation unless we all believe that we are. That's a necessary condition. You can't be a nation as, you know, the way that you can't be described by other people as if you don't believe it yourself. We have a sense of common agency. We're mutually concerned with one another. We're tied to a territory. There's a territorial commitment and a shared public culture. So a nation is a community of belief. It's extended in history. It's very active. The sense of a collective agency tied to a territory and, very, and has distinct traits. A couple of quick points on nations. If, you know, is nationalism an ethically defensible position? It's important to understand the history of nations. And of course, this is something there's a massive literature on, so I'm just giving you a, a crude outline. But nations were created by states. People often think that states were created by nations, but it's more or less the other way around. There's a process of nation building that happened over the last several centuries, where there's a famous book about France called Peasants into Frenchmen. It's a great book about people who spoke different dialects from the people in the next valley or in a place called Nizia that's now known as Nice. These people were Italian, more or less, right? But now they're, right, you're told that you're French. And France is one of the great places where people have been told that they're French and believe it, and then you become committed. But all countries are like this. It happened in Canada as well. And through public education, language, right, official languages, uh, national holidays, which <laughs> July 1st, flags, and so on. Nations are created as the famous book called Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. Now, they're not imaginary, they're real, but they only exist in our imagination. Most of the people who are our fellow Canadians who were patriots say or nationalists say we ought to show special concern for, we've never met. We never will meet them. We probably wouldn't like many of them. <laughs> Most of them, maybe, right? And yet we're supposed to show special concern for them. It's a weird, it seems like a weird kind of idea. But anyway, created by states. And this is the, these kind of, this I'll skip over relatively quickly because it's kind of obvious and Rod mentioned before. Obvious, I think, from, from the perspective of everyone here that an exclusivist, chauvinist nationalism is indefensible. Uh, the idea that my nation is superior to all nations, that in the name of my nation we can do whatever we want to step on other nations, be aggressive or whatever. That's kind of obviously indefensible. But there is a decent literature on so-called liberal nationalism which recognizes the human rights of every individual person uh, and also the rights of nations to self-determination. So every individual on earth, on this view, is entitled to uh, join some nation or other, and nations should be treated as equals and be self-determining in the sense of having their own state, maybe, or having 
a lot of collective determination within a federal state. So it, it, the sort of uneasy relationship between the uh, Quebecois and the rest, the ROC, as it's known, the rest of Canada. Okay, so uh, maybe for time constraints, I will skip over what I was going to talk about. Arguments for nationalism. People want to know about it, nationalism. What's to be said in favor of it and against it? I should, uh, I better skip, skip beyond it. Actually, I could do that and then finish. Yeah, I'll, I'll finish there instead of doing the last slide. So two things in favor of nationalism and one against. In favor of it, defenders of liberal nationalism have said that really, if individual freedom matters, and most people in liberal democratic societies believe that it does, different kinds of freedoms are especially valuable to us, national culture is a necessary condition for personal freedom. Why? Because it provides us with meaningful options from, to choose from in order to live whatever life we choose to live. So we live in the society where people live a range of lifestyles, they associate with different groups, uh, they're free to do so, we think that's a good thing, but those options that they choose in order to live this life, you know, freedom isn't valuable unless there's something worth choosing that's valuable. The argument is a national culture gives us those, those resources for, to choose from. That's a claim, it's often made, I think it's wrong because there, <laughs> there are non-national sources of meaning, there are international sources of meaning, it doesn't have to, it doesn't really mean, it doesn't follow from that that we ought to be especially concerned with national membership. The second argument here, the, what I call the trust, democ democracy and justice argument, says that national, nationality, shared nationality is valuable and we ought to show special concern for our fellow nationals and our national culture because it enables social trust and that social trust is needed for successful democratic welfare states. So in order to be committed to you know, being on the losing side of, I'm almost uh, every time on the losing side of an election um, <laughs> when I vote, uh, recognize that next time we might win, this time we lost, that sort of thing. Well, we're all Canadian or we're all Ontarians or something like that. So that I trust the people on the other side. It's more important to be a Canadian than to be a conservative or a New Democrat or a liberal or whatever. Or as a, a, a colleague told me, he voted communist last week. So <laughs> don't ask me why, I was like, really? Felt sorry for the guy who was, you know, wasn't going to get any votes or something. Um, but uh, shared nationality enables us to trust people, and trust is necessary in order to have the things that we think are valuable, like liberal democratic institutions and a welfare state. Okay, but there are uh, other things that can be the sources of, uh, of trust. There are things in our imagination other than nations, right? Religion, for instance, obviously, is an obvious example. Uh, Yuval Harari's great book, Sapiens, he talks about the, uh, the idea of money, right? Money doesn't exist, right? These pieces of paper or these cards or clicks on it, it doesn't exist. it's all in our minds. If we don't believe it and trust in it, it doesn't do anything. And, and that's nothing to do with nations. So we can have large-scale social cooperation without national membership. And then my final point, an objection to nationalism in general is this idea of history and truth or falsehood. Nationalism allegedly encourages belief in false or distorted historical narratives. And there the quote, famous quote is from Ernest Renan, the 19th century French historian, number 10, to forget, and I will venture to say, to get one's history wrong are essential factors in the making of a nation. And thus the advance of historical studies is often a danger to nationality. So the idea is that national, I think Orwell said that nationalists often have never even heard of the terrible things that were done by their nation, right? Never mind, they, they know about them and they sweep them under the rug. They don't even know about it. Never heard about it. Because we tend not to, you know, national history is one of, that's supposed to generate pride. And there's always then a, a bias towards emphasizing the positive, papering over the negative. And so if you value truth, you ought to be suspicious of this, this community. Okay, well, I think in the interest of time, I'm going to, uh, I won't talk about Theresa May, who, the anti-cosmopolitan who said that if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. Just uh, if you want to ask me about that after the break, I'll explain to you why she's wrong. And what the, the, the connection on this one between national membership on the one hand, basically this idea of cosmopolitanism and world citizenship, that we're all the moral equals of, every one other, of everyone else in a moral sense, if not a fully political sense, then it seems kind of odd that patriotic or not, we, as members of a particular nation, we have a relatively generous, you might say, uh, welfare state in Canada. We tax each other in order to redistribute to the less well-off among us, or sometimes the better, you know, to, to each other. And there are other people in the world who are much worse off. And their only 
fault, a flaw, is not having been born in the right place. How does that go together with the idea of equal opportunity? Equal opportunity is kind of the dominant ideology of our time. Nobody's against equal opportunity, right? The, the, the whole the modern age depends on appealing to this idea that you know, the fact that you were born an aristocrat shouldn't mean that you should have these privileges, right? Everyone should have the chance in life. And how you end up doing in life shouldn't depend on so-called morally arbitrary features of yourself, like sex, gender, gender identity, sexual preference, race, class, ethnicity, religion. These things, membership in any of those features of yourself for which you're not responsible shouldn't give you a better or worse chance in life than anyone else. Equal opportunity says those things are morally arbitrary. But look what's not on that list. National membership, country membership. This is the global justice question, right? Um, national membership is just as arbitrary as any of those. So how can we think that it's legitimate to have to organize the world as we do, whether we're patriotic or not? We redistribute to each other. We necessarily, in practice, show special concern for each other. And doing so ensures that those on the wrong side of a border are disadvantaged through no fault of their own. It seems just as arbitrary as denying someone status on the basis of sex, sexual preference, religion, and so on. Okay, I'll stop there. Thanks. That was Dr. Charles Jones and his talk on patriotism. Now join us for our next episode where Selena, Sherry, and Will, and myself will be discussing the topic on patriotism. Just as a reminder, we have a few events coming up. If you're in London, Ontario, we have a summer solstice picnic coming up on Friday, July the 6th. And this is a members-only event, so this would be a great time to start a new membership or renew your membership if you would like to join us. More information on becoming a member of HALA can be found on the HALA website located in our show notes. Lastly, just as a reminder, there's a Pride Parade coming up in London as well on July 29th. We are excited to have one of our members getting married in the parade. For more information on how to join the parade, make sure you're on the HALA mailing list. And again, the HALA website can be found in our show notes. So thank you for joining us today on the Humanist Agenda podcast, and I hope you'll join us in our next episode. <laughs>